Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Let's dig into episode two of Glass Houses. We have a lot of different ideas lined up for our future episodes, and a lot of them dig really specifically into certain albums or certain years. So before we got into that, we thought it'd be nice to do some career-spanning tidbits and trivia. A lot of things you may have heard about Billy Joel, some things you may not have known. We had a lot of fun putting these together, and this is actually our first time getting together to talk about them, so I think it'll be interesting to see what comes out of it. Absolutely, absolutely. There's so many things that, even though we're pretty well versed in things, Billy, that as we started digging into things, uncovered a lot of little bits of information that were super interesting to us that we didn't even know before ourselves. So we hope you dig some of the stuff we uncovered here. So to start off, we had a pretty general uh, piece of trivia for you. I mean, we all know Billy Joel's a huge star and everything, but when you look at the numbers, uh, it really puts it into to, uh, perspective. We found this stat from the Recording Industry Association of America, and uh, Billy Joel's U.S. album sales are at uh, 81.5 million units, and that's 6 million more than Michael Jackson, which, you know, perhaps our younger listeners need to be reminded, Michael Jackson was... Uh, unstoppable and everywhere in the uh, 80s and early 90s absolutely thriller was the biggest album of all time for a number of years and i mean to put him at number uh, you know in that in that stratosphere he's in some incredible company which a lot of times you know he doesn't get the do for some strange reason he's never kind of <laughs> in conversation he's not put into that category often but i mean he's really at the upper tier when it comes to sheer album sales it's incredible it is so the only people ahead of them are the Beatles and Elvis, which that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah. Garth Brooks, Le- Led Zeppelin, and the Eagles. I mean, that's, that's, some, that's some pretty nice company to have, you know. There was an animated graph I saw on Facebook uh, a month or two ago, and it gave you just this running total of the top 10 sellers every month from like, what is it, like 1950 through today? Yeah. Have you seen that? I yeah. have. Yeah, it's and, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's so funny because around the uh, mid-70s, you see Billy Joel just pop up on the bottom. And for as much as things are flipping around, he just grows and grows and grows. And he's, like, he's just like this sleeper from the bottom. And I think he was on there. He, I feel like he was on there more than anyone else almost. Like he never hit those like outlier stratosphere yeah. things like the Beatles and Elvis, but he yeah. was just so consistent for 20 years. And it's, it's interesting yeah, he, to see. He really was. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I think I saw him kind of pop into the bottom of that list, like right a little bit after a couple months after the stranger hit. And then he just kind of, like you said, steady as she goes, just kept moving up, uh, up and up and just kind of up and down, up and down, but just always in that top tier of album sales. And then, you know, you would see in the eighties, you'd see, you know, Whitney Houston hop on the list and move around and Metallica move up on the yeah. list and around and all these artists who were coming out in different times, but really between 1977 and 1993, Billy was just consistently there selling records. Yeah. Even after you would think the river of dream cycle was done, he was still he was still on there for a while. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. you know, even just yeah, even to see someone you know like you were saying maybe Whitney Houston, just seeing somebody like Madonna, kind of really as influential and and a cornerstone of culture that she is. She just really, in terms of album sales, she kind of popped on and popped off, mm-hmm. at least uh, compared to to Billy Joel. Yeah, agreed. And and that that's the kind of thing that I've I've found with 
I mean, I put Billy in the in the realm of pop, but in a different way. He's you know like you have your musician pop, where you know singers, songwriters, the like piano players, guitar players, those type of pop mm-hmm. artists seem to have a little more longevity. Where you have like the pop artists who are mostly singers and appeal to the younger audience, you'll see them pop on and explode with hits and hit records. But you know, ten twenty years on they're not sticking around like a Billy Joel or an Elton John, you know, who are still selling records. I popped onto uh, Spotify real quick. Yeah. And let's see. So his top five are Uptown Girl, Piano Man, We Didn't Start the Fire, She's Always a Woman in Vienna. Wow. That's a pretty surprising mix. And, you know, I think it's funny because a, a lot of those are were straight up hits, so got a lot of radio airplay in the day. But what's interesting is Vienna was not a hit. Slow down, you crazy child. You're so ambitious for a juvenile. But then if you're so smart, tell me why. Are you I know it's been in a couple so movies afraid. and things like that, so I'm sure that that helped. But that that's an interesting that's an interesting list there. Yeah, Vienna was a sleeper. Vienna's one a lot of people call for and uh, wasn't it wasn't it was never really a favorite of mine mostly because I listened to the stranger when I was a kid, you know, you mm-hmm. you tended to skip over ballads, but um Right. Yeah, that one that one had some some surprising staying power. Ariana Grande did a cover of it, a cover of it a few years ago too, which was not horrible. You know, it was it was a decent <laughs> piano ballad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and then it's interesting in, in being on an album with The Stranger that had so many hits and so many classics that mm-hmm. there are, you know, there's a couple songs that get overlooked, you know, due to that fact. Um, so that's that's interesting. I think of all the non-hits on that album, I think Vienna has had the most staying power long term. It may be a little more timeless than uh, than some of the other kind of lesser known tracks. Um, I mean, I love "Get It Right" the first time, but that's that's pretty seventies. You know, that that's pretty locked in. You know, everybody has a dream. Yeah, it's pretty old fashioned sounding. Vienna is that's an interesting song. It just kind of sits out there on its own. You know. Yeah, because I mean, you could hear, you know, like you know, you said Ariana Grande doing that today, but you can hear like a, you know, so many different modern singer songwriters. You could, I could hear. Uh, a million people doing that song who are current today and just make it work. So that, like you said, that's, that's a song that I think transcends the uh, decades and really can fit today just as well as it did in 77. So I think that's, that probably makes sense in that aspect. Yeah. I think too, uh, and this is something I alluded to on our first episode too. It's, it's, it is that balance between uh, being sensitive and being tough. You know, it's a ballad, but he's real punchy on it, you know? And, uh, you know, yeah, thinking about just the Ariana Grande version, you know, she didn't approach it like a torch singer. You know, she still had a, like a real modern pop punch and, you know, really just just kind of struck through. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it probably lent itself well to that because he had that bit of fight in him to begin with. You know, it's it's almost an argumentative song, even though it's a it's a slower one. And the song has a lot of wisdom for somebody in his 20s. You know, that's the thing, too. It's like he was like 27, 28 when that came out. And it's just, yeah. you know, he's already kind of speaking to the to the young generation of like, you know, slow down, kid. You're moving a little too fast. Yeah, it's an interesting sentiment to come out with at that age. I don't know. Let's let's take a look at these stats real quick. Uptown yeah. Girl, 278,496,000 plays. Piano Man's 332 million. Uh, and then it drops off from there. We Didn't Start the Fire is 149 million. Always a Woman, 112 million. And then Vienna is 89 million. So, yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> it's interesting in you, you bring up the Spotify stats because um, pure album sales 
are so much smaller than they were even five years ago. And physical singles aren't even being sold anymore. You know, a few years ago, the RIAA started including streaming and digital downloads as part of how they determine like golden platinum status. So I've actually, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I've seen, you know, within the last five years, um, like Uptown Girl and Still Rockin' Old to Me and some other Billy songs have gotten additional platinum certifications from the Recording Academy due to, you know, due to those streaming numbers you were just mentioning. Yeah, and that's it's, a, and it's amazing. Was... A song that's been out 30, 40 years is is still reaching that many ears. And, you know, that's just a testament to how timeless the music is. And, you know, I, I'd be curious to see an age breakdown, but I feel like Billy is one of those artists to where, you know, you can have a 10-year-old who wasn't even alive when Billy was putting out his last album, and then you may have someone who is 60 and 70 who is a contemporary of Billy as far as age goes, and they can both identify with different Billy Joel songs, and that's something that very few artists do. You know, it's interesting, right. too, you know, we're talking about the um, where he sits on the all-time list. He's also got an album that's in the top 10 as well. Um, I don't know if you know, but the uh, the Greatest Hits, Volume 1 and 2, it's the number mm-hmm. six sell- best-selling album of all time in America. And I think it's somewhere around 23 million sold, which is just mind-boggling. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, came out in 1985, yeah, like a- so we're looking at, we're looking at what, 35 years ago it came out, and that is just incredible. Yeah, that, that album is such a cornerstone. You know, so many people you, you know just had, if nothing else, had that album and were so familiar with those songs. Absolutely. And what's interesting, yeah. I know record companies did this with Greatest Hits compilations more back then in the day. Uh, and Billy, Billy, the Greatest Hits record is one of those. The initial vinyl pressing and the initial, I believe, the initial CD pressing of Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2 has the radio edits instead of the full album mm-hmm. versions. And that's the only yeah. place you can find them to this day. So it's it's actually kind of interesting. I, I've i got most of my collection digitized, and lately I went back and listened to the original pressing, and uh-huh. I forgot how some of those radio versions were cut together. And <laughs> you're like, oh, the piano solo in my life is gone, or you know, they cut out a verse in pressure, you know, so, you know, something like that. It's it's really yeah. interesting to hear how they cut some of these together, and some of them are pretty different, but others are just cutting little snippets in here to save, you know, five seconds of time. The uh, the saxophone solo on uh, New York State of Mind is a completely different take. And a completely different player. Yeah. Who was who, who were the two players? So uh, the original album version was Richie Cannata, who played the sax solo. Right. And then I want to say it was Phil Woods who did it on the mm-hmm. remixed version. Not 100%, 100% sure it was him, but I want to say it was Phil Woods. And... Yeah, I don't, that's that's the first time. I think the only time that I've I've heard a single version with a different recording or a different take used. Yeah, that was and that was funny because I, I believe the CD versions after that used that one. So I had uh, Turnstiles on CD and I found it um, probably around like the ninety nine or two thousand on record somewhere and mm-hmm. finally listened to it and you know it was like wait a minute Some, something's off and I can't tell what you know because it's such a subtle change to make. Right. And I A B'd it with the C D and realized that that was the uh uh that was that was the difference. Yeah, that's a totally different solo, yeah. which is incredible. And that was the first, <laughs> yeah. you know, another thing that record companies used to do back then too, when they're putting out an album with hits on it, they want you to they want the artist to put a couple new songs on it to give those who don't want to buy just the hits something new to buy. 
And so that yeah. was that was the first instance of him recording something brand new just for a compilation. And that yielded You're Only Human and The Night Is Still Young, which are great songs, but mm-hmm. exist in its own little bubble because they're not really part of a proper studio album. They were just the one-offs that were tagged at the yeah. end of the Greatest Hits records. Yeah, I mean, they had the videos and all. Um, I think he's done The Night Is Still Young a few times live over the past couple of years, but I don't, I'd don't. i be surprised to see if uh, You're Only Human has made the list. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think I heard a really bad bootleg recording. I think it may have surfaced once or twice on the bridge tour, so back in like 86. But I think it made its way in and out super quick in the live set. But... I think what's interesting with The Night is Still Young, though, um, that really lends itself to Billy's vocal range now because he's got that deep baritone Mm -hmm. now more so than like the soprano or tenor, whatever his range was back then. So his voice is deepened Mm -hmm. quite a bit. And so when I've seen it live recently, Billy will take that low vocal and Crystal Taliaferro will do the high vocal part and their voices blend very well together. But it's, yeah, it just really does lend itself to how he sings now. It's That's one song that he does live that actually doesn't remind me. It's not too far off from the album version because of how he sings now. It's 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 interesting. Yeah, it's one that really lends itself to that, to that low sound too. And that's one of the only times, maybe he did it on the Nylon Curtain. That was one of the only times he was he double tracked his vocals as well. Occasionally he would do it with like instrument wise with you know like a keyboard like on uh, "Don't Ask Me Why" the you know the the piano solo is um, it's either doubled yeah. doing octaves or he's playing it with two hands. But um, that type of of phrasing and voicing um, he didn't really do that much at all. You're right, especially doing like the octaves like that. Which, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. He's one of those artists, too, that tended to do his own harmonies on the records. To me, the other uh, uh, significant uh, artist that did that was Elvis Costello. For all the voices on We Didn't Start to Fire, those are all Billy as well. Yeah, and I, I had I had read that um, that Doug Stegmeier did provide some vocals throughout the career, his career on the studio albums. I'm not sure which. He's not credited mm-hmm. to anything as far as singing goes, but I think there's a few where he's singing on there, but then you have like a song like the longest time on an innocent man. Now that, that album has a ton of different singers cause he was going for that sixties, fifties doo-wop thing. So there's a lot of different singers right. on that record in general, but on the longest time, I think they tried it with different singers yeah. <laughs> at, at one point, but they just weren't getting the blend and the sound that Billy wanted. And I think it might've been Phil Ramone. He's like, why don't you just go in and do it? Yeah. Yeah, every single vocal take on that record, every single vocal track on The Longest Time is all Billy. Which is something interesting, too, um, because, you know, when you hear him, like, on the Sirius station and things, and he kind of talks about his songs, he he always says he's doing an impression of this person or an impression of that person. And when you hear him do, like, The Longest Time, you notice that once you know it's him, you realize that he's not only doing all the vocals, but he's doing a slightly different style uh, for the different vocal ranges, too. And what, and they, yeah, they all have a, they're very much him, but like you said, they've all got their own character to them. So they're not just 
consistent across the board. And how about that, though? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is 1983 when you've got like New Wave is really taken off and synthesizers and things like that are really kind of and drum machines are taking over in the pop music world. How many other people are making records that sound like they could have come out in the 50s and 60s and having huge yeah. hits with them in the mid 80s? Right. Or, I mean, that's that's unheard of. It really is. Uh, I think Liberty was uh, on record somewhere saying they did it so quickly he was sure it was going to be a flop because they were just kind of not screwing around, but they were just having fun and they were just blowing through these songs so quickly he didn't think it was going to stick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, re- I remember reading that that they cut the entire record in just a couple weeks, which is, especially by modern terms, is so quick. I yeah. mean, <laughs> so quick. <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing. I think Billy was the kind of guy in the studio who didn't like to overthink things. And so right. I think, and they were very much live. The, the basic tracks were cut with the full band. So I think if the band was hot and they got a good take, that was the take. So with a lot of records, you know, that you're building the foundation. Well, we'll do scratch tracks. Then we'll lay <laughs> down the drum tracks. And then the bass player will come in and cut bass, then guitars. Mm-hmm. And, and so nobody is playing together on so many records that are done now. Um, Billy was so different than that aspect that he had to play with drums and bass. So on almost every Billy Joel recording, the three of them were recorded live to tape. And actually a lot of the times as well, too, the vocal, the main lead vocal you hear was done live as well. Oh, really? That I didn't know. Yeah, he really, because he really wanted to make it sound like he sounds. I think he felt uncomfortable in the traditional studio vocal performance you know standing up in a vocal booth and it just you know you you know you sing differently when you're standing up and when you're sitting down not only does Mm -hmm. your approach to singing change but your actual physical voice is different because as you sit down you know your breath you know the the way you take in and out breaths and make tones is different because now you're sitting instead of standing completely upright yeah and so he i think he really he felt most comfortable at the piano singing and playing together. And so I think a lot of those initial lead vocals were done at the same way. Mm -hmm. There's a clip. uh, I think it was when glass houses came out. I found this old clip of him on uh, 2020 or nightline or one of those. And they had some clips of him in the studio and, and uh, yeah, he was just mugging with the microphone. Like he was like getting all aggressive and like, just, you know, it didn't look like it was for the camera at all. Because he was right. looking like past the camera away from, but it's like yeah, that's how he did his vocal takes. <laughs> it was just like as confrontational as it sounded, you know, like physically at the time. Absolutely, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I, th- I know the yeah. clip you're talking about. I think it was you may be right. And so like that's not a piano song. And so yeah, I remember him just like mic- microphone in hand, just yeah, just <laughs> just going around the room, just doing what he needed to do to kind of get into that character of the song and just feel comfortable and just you wouldn't have gotten that kind of performance tucked away in a vocal booth standing there by yourself yeah no everybody's quiet you're in the yeah, this tiny room on your own and a lot of that testament goes back to, you know, Phil Ramone too. You know, the right, a lot of people who haven't made records before don't understand what, how important a producer can be uh, in the in the making of an album. And Phil Ramone yeah. is another prime example of that. Again, he knew exactly what to do to get the best out of Billy and the band. So, you know, mm-hmm. he was doing, 
different things and different approaches that he never did with Frank Sinatra or the artist he did back then. But he <laughs> he knew Billy and he knew exactly what to do to just get that right performance out of him. And the results yeah. speak for themselves. That was, uh, that was also the interview where he gave the line, I told my teacher, I'm not going to Columbia University. I'm going to Columbia Records. <laughs> and it's like, man, you, you're one lucky son of a gun that you got to say that. <laughs> yeah, you're not kidding. Like, you know, you could have ended up on MCA, man. It wouldn't have been the same. <laughs> right. So speaking, I guess, of an innocent man, you know, yeah. it's a... You know, they always say Christy Brinkley's like all over that album, you know, in spirit. I guess Careless Talk is is probably actually one of the better examples because it's really about their relationship and how it played out in the gossip pages. Yeah. But then there's also uh, the misconception about Uptown Girl. I think a part of the misconception with Uptown Girl is the fact that Christy is in the video. And really featured in it, too. Yeah, she's pretty much the star. And so... And the whole video plays into, you know, Billy's this gas station worker and Christie's this <laughs> high class lady getting getting driven, you know, around in this Rolls Royce with the chauffeur and the whole bit. So it kind of plays into the yeah. whole theme that Christie's the uptown girl, Billy's the downtown guy, but the song isn't about her at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's about El McPherson, right? Yeah, absolutely. So after his yeah. divorce in eighty two, eighty one, whatever that was you know, he was being single for a while and dating models and dating different folks. And yeah, Al McPherson was somebody he dated prior to Christy Brinkley. And that served as the uh, inspiration behind Uptown Girl initially. Right. And uh, speaking of two of uh, misconceptions about bad date songs, there's always Big Shot. And that's when the, the mythology behind that, I think, is really shifted over the decades. Yeah. You know, the first time I heard it, he was on a bad date with somebody and then the bad date was Bianca Jagger. And then uh, then he was saying later on that uh, he's, I think in, the, in 2010, he was talking with Howard Stern and he said he wrote it after he had dinner with Mick and Bianca Jagger. And right. He, he, and the lyrics were supposed to be what he figured Mick's thoughts were probably about his then wife as it was happening. Yeah. But I found the most interesting one, the one where he was saying it was kind of about like all the times I went out and got drunk and how I felt afterwards. And he just put it in uh Second person, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the, him kind of talking to himself in the mirror the next day, like, oh, you had to be a big shot. Like, what the hell's wrong with you, guy? <laughs> you know, it's it's so it's like some self-regret and like, you know, living in the moment, living to excess, but it's the regret of the next day. Which, you know, it's funny, too. The video is kind of interesting, that, too. That yeah, yeah. There's yeah. two different <laughs> cuts of it. Right. So the, the cut I was most familiar with was, I guess, the one that was out in the in the 80s. If, I guess it was a promo in the 70s, but um, mm -hmm. that had them playing in a, on a soundstage and it would cut away to a woman just being drunk out, uh, you know, in this big party dress and just being stupid and all her friends are real embarrassed. And if memory serves, because mm -hmm. I can't find it anywhere, that must have been shot in the 80s. If I remember the hairdos and, and what people kind of look like. Yeah, it had to part. have been. Because I feel like, that was recut together for the video album in the mid eighties. So I feel like yeah. it's like straight out of like 85. Right. I can't confirm yeah. it. So don't go emailing me and say, <laughs> Hey, you're wrong, but that's just my gut. <laughs> well, yeah, because now the only version I can find on YouTube and on the greatest hits DVD mm -hmm. is, is just a straight, just that straight performance video, which is cool to watch, you know, yeah. to see the whole thing through. But I, I kind of miss that, that goofy part of it. Yeah. I, yeah, I do too. It was, it was kind of cheesy, but it was, it was, you know, I think it goes back to, it was, it was the video that I knew for so long. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what's What's interesting about the the um, performance aspect of it too? I was I never knew where that was actually filmed. If it was just some random soundstage or whatever, like you said, a- until a few years back, I saw some photos of Phil Ramone's studio on uh, in New York uh-huh. there, and where all the albums between the Stranger and up through the bridge, I want to say, if not a little bit before, um, all Phil's studio, mm-hmm. A&R Recording, that's the name of it. I saw some photos, and that kind of backdrop that's behind the band in the Big Shot video was in the studio. Huh. And, and so it just hit me. It's the recording studio where they're playing it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense. And that that, and that, uh, that had some nice big windows in it too, didn't it? If I'm, I'm really trying to... Yeah, so it's actually... that's Yeah, that's what I was talking about, those windows. I had... That that studio, yeah, those windows. That's actually like kind of like prop pieces. Um, but yeah, it's it's actually just kind of backdrops that were moved, you know, or maybe just treated baffles that were moved around the studio. But those actually aren't windows that look out to anything. Yeah, I'm looking at the video now. Um, who's playing guitar on that? Who's uh, who's got the 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 early Springsteen cap and the the pink. T- Oh yeah, yeah. That, I know I'm throwing it right at you like you're looking nope. at it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, that's Steve Kahn, <laughs> the guitar player. So he played Yeah. He played on the um 52nd Street and I believe the Stranger album. So he kind of came mm-hmm. in um like after the after the Turnstiles album and tour, Russell Javers was going to go out and pursue his own solo recording career. So he left the Billy Camp for a while. He didn't play the Stranger album. I think he might have been involved in the tour, but he didn't play on the album. Uh-huh. And and um, so that was Steve Kahn who came in and played on those records. I always yeah. remember him more than more than anybody else on the on the. Yeah, it's funny uh, you're talking about the guitar playing. Uh, what's interesting too, the um, and guitar solo on Big Shot. Uh-huh. I read that that's actually David Brown. That was his very first recording appearance with Billy Joel. Um, really? He did, yeah. He's not even credited on the record at all. So I believe he just came, kind of came in and played that solo at the tail end of Big Shot there. And um, yeah. he's not credited until Glass Houses. But that, if you go back and listen to that end guitar solo and then go back and listen to some of like David Brown's like Close to the Borderline, some of his guitar work on those songs, I'm, I'm pretty mm-hmm. positive it's him. I would believe it. He's got that was a really distinctive tone that that really ties the end of that song together. Kind of comes out of nowhere and it, it really sticks out when you think the song's done. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. And when you say close to the borderline too, I can hear that 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 nice fat like that was a rock and roll guitar sound, man. That was not like a singer songwriter seventies. No. That was like almost ACDC. <laughs> it really was. It was it was closer to ACDC than just the way you are, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, just, just by a hair, I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, Glass Houses, that was Billy's attempt to distance himself far away from just the way you are. Now, granted, there's a couple ballads, you know, Through the Long Night, You yeah. Were the One. There's some, uh, some mm-hmm. more sensitive songs, but on... You know, songs like Fantasy and You May Be Right and Lena and Close to the Borderline, especially. That was him really trying to make a statement to tell people he was much more than a balladeer. Yeah. Have you have you seen the uh, the rare Weird Al Yankovic song? It's still Billy Joel to me. Oh, yeah. Is it just like him in an accordion, <laughs> I think? Right. 
Yeah, there's only like demos and like a live version. It's it's pretty cold hearted, especially for like Weird Al standards. Like he really had a chip on his shoulder about it. <laughs> yeah, I kind of thought so too because I I don't know. Historically, I always felt that Weird Al stuff was pretty lighthearted in nature, and he was not yeah. going for like a cheap shot or to be mean <laughs> specifically to somebody. Right. But yeah, I remember hearing that. I was like, ooh, that's kind of harsh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man, you woke up on the wrong side of the weird bed today. <laughs> And also, speaking of 52nd Street, 52nd Street was also the first commercially uh, released CD, right? That was uh, October of 82? Yeah, October 82. uh, Japan... Sony Japan was at the forefront of the digital music game for consumers. Uh And the first commercially available compact disc out there was 52nd Street. I don't know if it was the very first one pressed, but it was the first one that actually was ready and came out. So he was at Mm -hmm. the very forefront, whether he even knew it or not. uh, 52nd Street was the first CD to hit commercial markets. And I don't know if uh, it was the first to be available in America, but... Um, shortly after it started to hit America too. But yeah, the very first compact disc was 52nd Street, which is pretty wild. And what's really funny too, it kind of blows my mind that as we're talking about this, there's going to be people listening to this podcast today who have never even owned a CD. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, vinyls make it to resurgence. It's doing pretty well. But I mean, there's, there's a large snapshot of people who listen to music who have never owned a piece of music have never owned a cassette yeah. a cd a record you name it <laughs> yeah a friend of mine years ago she used to give out like instead of christmas cards she would give out like her mix cd for the year and she stopped when uh when a couple of people were, were like you know i have literally no way of playing this thing right like not even my laptop has a cd drive anymore and it wasn't the same after that. She would give you like a Spotify list. Like, no, you used to draw something on the front. It was a thing. You got it in the mail. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know I'm old school, but I am much less likely to click a Spotify link than I am to put in a CD. <laughs> yeah. That somebody like curated for me. You know, if it's an artist, I right. like, sure, I'll go listen to it. But yeah, I, I don't know. To me, like you said, you know, drew a little cover on it and, it feels like yeah. a little more care and more of an experience to like put on something physical that somebody made for you as opposed to like, here, click this link to listen to my Spotify playlist. Right. I mean, I, I, I feel like for the most part, I treat Spotify like the Library of Congress. You know, like I, I kind of go in there when I'm curious about what something sounds like. But if I want to hear it, I have to dig out a CD or find it on record or something. Yeah, I'm the um, same way. Yeah. My daughter is, uh, well, she's 17 now, and uh, last year for her birthday, she wanted uh, an album by AJR. And so I said to her, listen, why don't I buy you the record? You know, you, you, if you're going to listen to it on Spotify, you're going to listen to it on Spotify. I'll buy it for you, you know, on vinyl. And then you have a keepsake, and then, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you get the download code, and you can use it that way. And she said, okay. Yeah. And it was, uh, I think it was The Click something. It was The Click was the name of the album, and it was... Um, it was in the format, I would say, of uh, Songs in the Key of Life and that it was a double e- double LP uh-huh. with a small uh, EP attached to it, 
which I, okay. you know, had to run over yeah. and, and yell at her like, you got, no, 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 change it to uh, when she got the, the smaller record. I was like, no, 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 you got to put it on seven inch, you know, the, the, the needle like scratched across the rubber. Oh, but no. I will never forget that um, I showed her how to put the record on and I have two desktop speakers, like really nice ones and I kind of pull them out and I towed them in and I said, this is the prime listening spot. You got to sit with your butt right here on the sofa. Yep. And the needle dropped and, uh, and the song started. And if you've ever seen one of those videos of uh, like infants that were born deaf and get the cochlear implants. Yes. And the first time they hear something and their eyes just bug out and they look everywhere. Like what is happening? Yeah. Like, I promise you after years of listening to stuff like only on our iPhone, that was the face she made when she heard vinyl for the first time. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And that's that's what I miss about, you know, physical media, CDs and records and stereos being the way people consume music. I mean, I'm all for people listening to music any way they can, so long as they're listening to it. But like the experience, mm-hmm. you just can't compare the experience to yeah listening to it through earbuds or on your phone or anything like that. I mean, the experience of taking out a record like you said putting it on the turntable sitting in just the right spot and then you open it up and you got you know the photos of the band and lyrics Mm -hmm. and you can read about it and follow along i mean that experience is just second to none it is and you know what's fun too when you when you grew up on cds and you went back and found the records there was always something else on the on the on the sleeve that you didn't get on the cd or the cassette so mm-hmm. i always thought songs in the attic was a great example of this because i had it on cd and you know it still had i still think this is one of the best uh packages uh, in terms of packaging out there because yeah. it had that great essay and i love that the essay was actually on the back of the record so if you were even in the store you could still read the essay and and, and get a flavor for it and then on the inside, he talks about each song in that definitive Billy Joel style, you know, where he's not waxing too sentimental about anything and he's not patting yeah. himself on the back, you know. Woodstock was a bust. I was there. Badasses, B.O. Or, or, yeah, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And you could just hear then, him saying it. Yeah, that just attitude, yeah. you know. <laughs> right. And this is, you know, and remember, too, you know, this is before the Sirius XM station that comes on and off where – you you could hear these snippets on the radio. You know, this is the only way you were going to get these these little yeah. tidbits about the songs. But when you look at the um, the uh, the actual record cover on the inside, it had all these photos of the band that were not on the CD or the cassette. And so this was one, you know, because I had a record player in high school. I graduated in '99, and nobody was listening to records, so I was picking up crates off the street constantly. Oh, for nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. People were giving them away. And, uh, and yeah, the first time I opened up this, this particular record and I looked and I was like, wow, look at all these pictures I've never seen before for the amount of times I've poured over the liner notes to this album. I yeah. never saw all the, you know, Liberty's wearing these ridiculous sunglasses in one shot. And doesn't he have like um, a bandana on or something with some maracas in his hands? Yeah. It's, yeah. That's one of them. David Brown looks like Dave Mustaine almost. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one shot. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, that really added a lot, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's got the maracas. He looks like Springsteen in that shot, Liberty. Yes, that's it. (laughs) If you don't have it, go on eBay, go on Discogs, and get it on record, Just even if you don't have a turntable, just just for the experience of looking at this thing. It's really fantastic. Or, you know, for the love of God, people, if there's a record store within 30, 50 miles of you, please go do it. (laughs) That's my plea for today. I promise you there's nothing like walking in and flipping through a stack of records. It's just, it's just fun. 
<laughs> oh, I do it as often as I can. And it's funny. I've got a pretty sizable record collection, but yeah. so there's not a lot of things that I'm, that I don't already have, which I'm fortunate to say, but there's always that one thing that is kind of hard to find or I forgot about that mm-hmm. I don't have. And it's that hunt where you're like, am I going to stumble upon something new that like, Oh man, there's this original pressing of this or this limited edition, this that I didn't have, yeah. didn't have or whatnot. I teach uh, drum lessons a couple of days a week out of a record store. So I am the rudest person in the world because I walk in and I say hello, but my fingers are already walking through the records that have come in just to see what he's got, you know? Oh yeah. And, um, I got into Genesis, like old Genesis, um, early this year. And he had uh, Genesis Live, the first one, and he had Foxtrot. And Mm -hmm. I'm looking at them, and I'm like, "Eh, I'm not really into them. I'm not going to get them. Like two, three months later, I'm like going nuts over these records. And they've long since, you know, left. And for me, I don't order offline because it's like the thrill of the hunt. Like I want to go out and find the record. Like that's what's fun to me. So I have to wait till I find it somewhere. Yep. And uh, right around Christmas, when you're not supposed to buy anything for yourself, Foxtrot makes its way back onto the uh, rack. And I'm like, shh, don't tell anyone. And I buy it. (laughs) And I bring it home and I listen to the first side and I flip it over. I'm like, here we go. Supper's ready. That's right. It's the first side again. And I looked it up and it was a rare pressing mistake where they pressed two side A's. (laughs) No way. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. So, yeah. There's there's a record store day pressing of a, a Stone Temple Pilots record that came out not long ago. It was only two years ago. Uh-huh. But um Warner Brothers or whoever put out the album didn't notice until it was already released that uh-huh. it was pressed at the wrong speed, kind of like Cold Spring Harbor. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's it's a couple clicks too fast or too slow. I forget which way it is. Um uh-huh. but it's it's the wrong speed. And, but they, they released a statement saying, if you bought it, send us a, um, a photo of the record and a photo of your receipt. We'll send you a replacement LP. So you get to keep yeah. the wrong one and, but they're going to send you a speed corrected one. Um, huh. But as bummed as I would have been to get something like that, the collector in me is like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how I felt about that one too. I was like, well, I'm keeping this one. I'll find another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good find. Yeah. So this was something Michael put on our outline. We have a shared Google Doc. And he said, hey, I got new stuff on there for tonight. And I looked in and I saw what he wrote. I'm like, really? And we started talking. I said, no, 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 don't tell me. Don't tell me. I want to hear this story for the first time. (laughs) Yeah. So this is like another groundbreaking production thing that um, Billy and Phil Ramone and the whole camp was involved. Um, Songs Uh in the Attic was actually one of the one of, if not the very first live pop albums to record be recorded digitally so front to back uh-huh. it, it was a digitally recorded record i mean these days that's par for the course you know digital yeah. audio workstation into pro tools and all that but mm-hmm. 1981 when this thing was recorded it was all digital so they had these big big live trucks out of the venue where they were bringing in the you know signal from the board and everything was done mm-hmm. digitally i imagine to these giant digital tapes or digital hard drives at the time but it was yeah. the, it was a very you know they i don't know i don't know i wonder who's who's thought it was to do it cuz that couldn't have been cheap you know cheap is one thing rolling the dice like that on a live record yeah. that's pretty crazy mm-hmm. i couldn't imagine not being worried about something crashing back then Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And 
the fact that they were able to get such consistent sounds the once they mixed it is incredible because I don't yeah. know if you all know this songs in the attic is 11 songs recorded live, but it's at, you know, eight or nine different venues around the country. Some of them are small clubs. Some of them are, you know, big arenas like Madison square garden, but so mm-hmm. they're all recorded in different spots yet. Each song, song to song, sounds similar, has a similar sound, and the mix is consistent, which is really hard to pull off when you've got recordings done in different locations like that. Yeah, that was something, you know, if you you were really paying attention, something might clue you in just based on the crowd, you know, crowd reaction or size. But uh, just listening to it straight through, you wouldn't think about it. Yeah. Have you... um, have you ever heard the uh, there's a, there's that like uh, I guess two discs worth of uh, bootlegs of outtakes from songs in the attic floating around, which are pretty fun. Yeah, it is pretty cool, and I don't know if the ver- you've heard the same version, but you hear I think it's the mixing engineer. Um, he'll do um, mm-hmm. he'll talk at the beginning of it, you know, tell, say what song, what venue, what take it is. This is Streetlight Serenader, Madison Square Garden two, soundcheck, Necam eight. A song called Streetlight. Serenader. I know on that bootleg, there's like, you know, sleeping with the television on and mm-hmm. and some more recent songs and some stuff from Glass Houses and a couple hits and all that. And because they recorded full shows, it wasn't like they just recorded these specific songs at these shows. So, you know, they had recordings of, you know, a couple dozen shows on the on these tours. And I think the original plan was to be a bigger set and to be yeah. deep cuts mixed with hits. But as they, I think as they started going through it, they realized that, you know, the hits and the newer songs that were recorded with his current band didn't sound that drastically different than what was on the record because it was the same guys. And right. But Billy really liked what these guys did with these old songs on a live setting. And so that just kind of dictated what they, the direction they decided to go with it. They're like, well, let's have it kind of be a presentation of some of these older, lesser known songs that really Mm -hmm. didn't capture what I wanted to on record you know, I want you to hear how I want them to sound I, the way we do them yeah. live. And it turned into, to me, a great record. I mean, I love that record. Yeah. When you go back and you listen to Miami 2017, when I went back and listened to it on turnstiles, I was like, yeah, that's great. But it doesn't come close to that live version. You know, I mean, nothing doesn't just, it, it kicks off the record. It's got that great, like that Moog thing going on. It's supposed to sound like a siren in the beginning. Yeah. It's um, yeah. Yeah. And everybody and loves you now. Oh yeah, everybody loves you now with that just the the dual acoustic guitars going on between David and Russell and just just the you can hear him almost straining his voice but it's still super controlled and gosh, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting because you know, and then when you listen to Cold Spring Harbor, it's it's piano based and then you switch it over to guitar. So that was that got the radical reworking. Yeah, that's that was an interesting choice. I, I thought on that as well. Um, what's kind of crazy too that I only discovered by listening to those songs in the attic bootlegs is that I know at least two of the songs that made songs in the attic were recorded during soundcheck and they pumped in really? audience. They pumped in the audience, uh, street you know, life, street life serenader uh, and the ballad of Billy okay. the kid. Really? Yeah. 
That's interesting. Because Ballad of Billy the Kid on that album has the one break. Yep. They sing it instead of the, you know, playing it. <laughs> and that was that was overdubbed. Like there's Billy kind of singing, singing it a little bit on this mix. The sound of the whole band doing it or whoever's all doing it. That was, I'm pretty sure, added during overdubs or whatever after the fact. But almost everything else lines up perfectly. I remember hearing it the first time. I'm like, this sounds exactly like the version, but there's no audience. And I think he says right. something sound check before it kicks in. And then I went into my little audio program and I overlaid them. And I'm like, yeah, wait, it's the same recording. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> no. And what's, what's impressive about that to me too, is the fact that even if it's a sound check take, mm-hmm. they're still playing it. Like there's 20,000 people in front of them. Yeah. You wouldn't know it's an empty arena. I like, um, also, I like, I forget, I, it might be on New York State of Mind on the uh, on the bootleg on the ad takes. He goes, uh, this is a song off the record, Turnstiles, and everybody cheers. And he goes, well, where were you when it came out? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that album, I think, and, uh, just and- sold a couple, I think, cracked the million or two million mark not too long ago. That's, a, that's one of those, because that was right before The Stranger. And so that... You know, right. those early albums really, really didn't sell well. And just, I think, just within the last 10 years, hit the one or two million sales mark, which is wild. Talking about turnstiles. Turnstiles, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, so if the song's in the attic, then the Nylon Curtain, that also was digitally recorded as one of the first, right? Yeah. So I, th- I think kind of piggybacking with having this uh, recording gear you know, in 81 that they did all this digital recording for the um, the Songs in the Attic album. I think they utilized a lot of that technique for the Nylon Curtain. And that was Billy's, I'm going to go out and say that was Billy's most ambitious record. Because that, that record is so textured mm-hmm. and so layered and has so many crazy sounds that, that that's a record you want to listen to with earphones. Because yeah. with some good headphones on because... There are so many textures and things going on that you're not you, you don't hear right away. They experimented with different samplers and loops and things like that that are just mm-hmm. just kind of you know layered low in the mix, but just create this big sound. And um, so I think they all really experimented on this record, you know, with the digital recording and with just what they were doing with the songs. And uh, I think that was. The one of the longest albums that he made too, as far as time in the studio. If I remember correctly, he mm-hmm. spent, you know, six to eight months in the studio on this one. So that it was a lot of work, as yeah. opposed to the uh, couple weeks that they were in the studio for, you know, <laughs> an innocent man. I think I think the Nylon Curtain was such such a labor and such a intense and long session. I think he wanted something less stressful and more yeah, fun. I wanted to shake it off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's interesting because um, when you, when you hear about albums that were sort of that arduous, they're rarely, they're rarely popular. So I'm thinking of maybe something like Lou Reed's Berlin, which has grown in stature over the years. Yeah. But at the time was pretty much a total flop and it's still an odd record, you know, 
but it, you know, even even Billy Joel at his most labored, you know, he gave you Allentown, he gave you Pressure, mm-hmm. gave you Good Night Saigon. A couple yep. years ago, I was uh, I was reading Fields of Fire, the uh, Vietnam War book. Yeah, and that was um, that was it was interesting to pop on Good Night Saigon and and uh, you know, sort of as a testament to his songwriting, it how well it fit, it how more genuine mm-hmm. it seemed, you know, having read because Fields of Fire, I believe, was written by a Marine. Okay, so that was that was pretty firsthand, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, the story behind uh, Good Night Saigon is that. I believe uh, Billy's friends encouraged him to write it. Yeah. And had, you know, talked to him, kind of told him their stories. Yeah. And he really resisted it, I think, for a long time because, you know, he didn't, he got out of the draft. He didn't go. And right. I think there was a lot of guilt that went along with it, which is understandable. And so he just, yeah. I think he just felt like he wasn't qualified to tell the story. And, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think his friends were like, no, you are the person you've got the vehicle to do this. So we're going to we're going to sit you down and tell you what it was like and tell you what it went through. And, you know, you put it through your voice and through your hands. Um, But we'll you know, we'll give you those accounts on what it was like. And and, you know, and that's another thing about Billy's songwriting that is great. It's not an anti-war song, you know, even though I know nobody loves war, but you know, Billy writes about the human condition and people. And mm-hmm. so this was, you know, good night Saigon was, you know, the Vietnam war was the setting, but he, he went and made a song instead of a political statement. He made it about the people and what they went through and their experiences. And that made it a more universal song. Yeah. It was very humanizing. I read a critic one time that gave him some crap for, complaining about having no soft soap like that's one of the lines but oh right i have no i have no citation for this but i would be very willing to bet somebody said that to him and that's the sort of detail that makes a human and that makes it real that somebody's gonna mine through everything and dig down and come out with something that that really makes it relatable just that idea of like you don't have the comforts of home and it's just exactly a a straightforward way of saying it you know yeah yeah it really is yeah and it took him a, a while to get that song ready to come out. I remember reading somewhere mm-hmm. that I think the process for putting that song together may have originated as far back as 77 or 78. So you're talking like the, oh, yeah. the 52nd Street era. But he's he's wise and he's he knows how to structure a record. He knows when to hold something back, though. I mean, I could not imagine a song like Goodnight Saigon going on any other record. It does not belong yeah. on 52nd Street or Glass Houses. It just stick, would stick out like such a sore thumb. But the Nylon right. Curtain, you know, it's got that Beatles-y vibe to it. And that whole mm-hmm. record, the running theme is about, you know, middle America. And it just ties into the theme of that record so well that it, it just found a perfect home on that album. Another example of him doing that is, um, and so it goes. That was written for the Innocent Man record, but gosh, mm-hmm. that's such an up record. Even the ballads are up and hopeful. I couldn't imagine, yeah. and so it goes, <laughs> being stuck anywhere <laughs> on that record. Um, and he yeah. held it out for Stormfront six years later, which is a perfect bookend to that record as well. So knowing, right. having this wealth of material, but knowing where to put place it on an album or where to hold off. And that there's an art to that, that is lost today, but that was, you know, he, 
mm-hmm. made those records and sequenced them with purpose. And I'm glad, you know, certain songs were held off and certain songs were, you know, were placed where they were. Cause that just, it's, I couldn't imagine it any other way. Yeah. It really lent to the cohesion of every album. I liked, um, there was a uh, sort of a fan theory about River of Dreams that uh, that really made it a little more enjoyable to me. And it was the idea that if you listen to it, it's in sequence because he comes out of the gate so aggravated about everything. Yeah. His neighborhood sucks. He got screwed on his, you know, by his business partner on his deal. Yeah. Uh, you know, I Blonde Over Blue is like, you know, it's kind of one of his depression songs, even though he is like talking about how wonderful his wife is. Like it just, it dwells so hard, you know. It does. Anyway, so it's just that idea that like it's, it's very angsty and it's very, you know, that kind of middle-aged dread. And then he and then he goes upstairs and he sings his daughter a lullaby and he goes to bed and he has like this sort of, you know, spiritual awakening through this dream. And then the second half, you know, the rest of it is so much more relaxed. And then you got 2,000 years and last words. So it's interesting to hear it as like your the, your day to day is sucks so bad, and he, he sings the lullaby to his kid that has like a, a break, you know, like almost like the fever breaks in his in his psyche. The, the fever broke. And he's so much more relaxed yeah. on the and at the end of it, yeah. Yeah, and then ends the album more on like a a refl- you know like reflecting instead of right being angry. Yeah, it's 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 really very well done, especially when you put it in that context. He started writing Allentown a long time before the Nylon Curtain as well, right? Yeah, was originally Levittown at one point. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, him talking about how it was uh, Levittown was the original lyric, and then he's like, "There's not much to say about Levittown," <laughs> but he loved the the sounds and the syllables and the melody enough that he knew there was something there. He just needed to find the right town, I guess. That song originally started out to be. Well, we're living here in Levittown. Levittown doesn't sing so hot, right? Well, I don't and know. And they're closing all the factories down. They don't have any factories in Levittown. <laughs> now, I played in Allentown for a number of years. There's a lot of colleges. There was a theater there, the Roxy Theater. It was a really good place to play with a very supportive audience. And I remember one night this kid came up to me. One of the last times we played in Allentown, he goes, you know... You're never going to come back here again. And I said, why do you say that? He goes, well, the Beach Boys played here. He goes, you know, and after they make it, nobody ever comes back here. And it really hit me in the Ooh, heart. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to write a song called Allentown. And the thing I like about the name Allentown is I didn't mean it so much to be that particular town. Allentown sounds like living here in Jimmy Town. You know, Allen. You know, Allen. It's just an American name. Allentown. It's, you know, as opposed to living here in Massapequa. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, he he toured a lot up in Allentown in the Lehigh Valley in, in his early career. Have you heard the, uh, the the tape from the Roxy Theater in Northampton? No, I actually haven't heard that yet. That, that came up, and I found out about this because I'm in Philly, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll head out that way sometimes, and, you know, a couple people, like, told me of the lore, and then I, I went and, and found it because, like, everything is on YouTube. So, like, 1973, about a month after Piano Man came out, he played this little place called the Roxy Theater. It was his first theater show. Wow. Um, and uh, and they, it was on the, uh, they broadcast it on the radio, and they taped it, and they lost it. And 20 minutes of his performance uh, surfaced about two or three years ago. No kidding. It's pretty interesting. 
there's a, and there's a lot of lore behind it. I, you know, maybe we'll talk about it uh, on another uh, podcast later on. Yeah. But it was just funny because he was he was opening for the Doobie Brothers and the Beach Boys, and he hated it. You know, in that way of I'll tell George Martin, no, thank you, if I can't use my band. He's right. the guy that's like, oh man, opening for the Beach Boys sucks. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Played in Philly uh, last week, and it was really nice. We've been we've been touring with the uh, the Beach Boys, right? And the Doobie Brothers. So you got to dig it. I come on stage, you know. Here he is, Billy Jello. Let's really hear it. <laughs> and it's this whole audience. Beach Boys, Beach Boys, Doobie Brothers, Boogie, Boogie, Boogie. And uh, at the time, uh, a DJ was playing Cold Spring Harbor, which, okay. you know, obviously didn't get a lot of airplay and things like that. So mm-hmm. he rolls in there and he had just put this band together. He says on the tape, oh, yo, hold on now. We've only been together about three weeks. But everybody wanted to hear stuff from Cold Spring Harbor, which he was not expecting. So he did like all but two songs off Piano Man. And then on the tape, he's like, okay, okay, well, I'll do She's Got Away because I can do that one by myself. Yeah. Um, he opens with uh, Rosalinda. Um, oh, wow. He does Souvenir. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's Souvenir a pretty cool even tape. back then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's another, that's another good example of one that he, that he held for a couple albums. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of talking. There's a, there's a, a lot of good stage banter on that on that recording too. I'll have to check. It's that pretty out. interesting to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I, I could have grown up in an age. Um, I mean, I'm glad I'm only 40 right now, but <laughs> I wish I could have been able to be old enough to see Billy when he was kind of on the rise, going through the ranks, playing clubs and theaters and, yeah, you know, in the yeah. early seventies into the eighties, gosh, that would have been such a treat to get to see him at that point in his career. Yeah. And to really hear everything grow, you know, Mm-hmm. Just to hear the sound grow and blossom over those records. I mean, can you imagine, you know, as much as I love the early records, could you imagine like hearing Cold Spring Harbor and, and Piano Man and being like, wow, this guy's great. And then the level goes up like at least two or three more times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's like, yeah. it's like those records stand on their own and are great for what they were. I mean, Cold Spring Harbor was the first record. So there's a lot to unpack with that stuff. But yeah. There's some great stuff on the first couple albums. And like you said, I mean, to start with a good album and then everything just got better and better and better that, you know, mm. gosh, like you said, he just kept going up and up a level. And Cold Spring Harbor is such a weird one. But, yeah, you know, I mean, it wasn't really thought about to be an album, I guess, in the way you would you would think of an album. Right. Yeah, because Billy really never wanted to be a solo artist. I mean, he had his bands in the 60s. You know, there was the Echoes, the Lost Souls, and then you had the Hassles, which was signed to United Artists, and they did really well out there. And then two of them went off and formed Attila, which was a two-man heavy metal group that (laughs) a drummer and a keyboard player. They got signed (laughs) to Epic Records, did one album, and it was done real quick. Um, (laughs) So I think Billy had his taste of being a live performer and doing his thing in the 60s. And I think he really, really wanted to just be a songwriter, I think. And that was, he was really starting to focus on like, well, I'd like to start writing songs for these other folks to record. Mm -hmm. And managers and record companies and everyone at the time was like, well, the way to get your songs heard is to do an album. Right. And he's like, well, that doesn't make sense, but I don't want to do an album. I want to write songs for other people to do albums. Yeah. (laughs) And so he got convinced at an early age, like, well, if you want to get these songs out there, so people hear them and might want to record them, you need to do it yourself. 
And so he, he followed that suggestion and went into the studio and cut what became Cold Spring Harbor in hopes to launch his songwriting career and nothing more. And as we're going to unpack throughout the next several episodes, it took quite a different turn, but Cold Spring Harbor (laughs) became the launching pad for Billy Joel as a singer, songwriter, performer, and not just a songwriter. And that's going to be the subject of our next episode uh, where we start dissecting uh, album by album. And we're starting right at the beginning with Cold Spring Harbor. Absolutely. We thought what better place to start than where it all started as Billy Joel as a solo artist. Stick around for the next episode while we dig into everything involving Cold Spring Harbor. The stories behind the songs, the stories behind the recording, and the band and the musicians who played and toured around that record. So stick around. There's going to be a lot more to talk about with episode three coming up. 